Hello and welcome back to Absurdity. My name is Ryan Becker, if you're new here, and I am joined by my Set for Life co-host, Henry Johnson. And here's what I mean by that, if anyone is curious. It, it, what I mean is that Henry has done... He has to murder me to get rid of me. He, <laughs> Yeah, it turns out you're set for life because you've made enough money that I, when I kill you tomorrow, you'll be fine, obviously. Uh, no, the you know, set a man on fire... And he'll be warm for the rest of his life. And that's exactly what we're doing here. Exactly no, the, what Ben Franklin said, yes. Yes, exactly. So, no, what I mean by that is Henry has, uh, basically at the time of recording this, we're, we're, a couple, we're a couple days shy, has survived his first year of marriage. Oh, and yes. That is one of the, that is the, what is, it, what is it, statistically the first year is the hardest year because that's the year where you have to really learn how to, give up your independence and give up your, you know, and, and really learn how to live life alongside another person every moment, you know, except for when you're at work or, you know, having a life of your own. But yeah, like that's, that's significant. What you guys don't know is that Henry's wife actually sits just off camera coaching him on everything that he says. Um, <laughs> what and what make- is this like, like, like Nancy when, you know, Reagan and they used to joke that he never spoke when she was sipping water. Exactly. Yeah. See, you understand. You, you, yeah, you're right there. Now you know. That is a um, really dated political joke, but anyway. <laughs> that's okay. Um, you guys dated and now you're married and it's going well. So, yeah, congratulations. Actually, I kidnapped to you, her like the Benjamites, you know, in, in Judges. Oh, no. Stop it. Stop she, it. She was, she was dancing in the field and I just took her, you know. <laughs> so, so, um, yeah, if you didn't know by now and you're new here, we are Christians, uh, and Henry is a pastor. I used to pastor, and I still am actively involved uh, in leading ministry and, and work, actually work with college students specifically now. But the So, yeah, that's, that's kind of the framework we come from. And we believe if, in the priesthood of all believers, which is another theologically wordy term that we're not going to get into today. But just know that's to me, Ryan is still a minister. Yes, and uh, I thought you were going to go the route of like we believe women should be uh, be able to be leaders and pastors and be able to teach. Well, just the same, I mean, which, since we're since yes, we're on we the do. topic, yes, we yes, we do absolutely. as well. We do. Um, I was going to do something probably more crass, not hopefully not totally crass, but I was going to say you minister to my needs all the time. <laughs> yes, um, thank you. I appreciate that. You minister to mine, Henry. Thank you so, for watching, everyone. Now that they're all tuning out, like, yeah. No, so today we're going to talk about something that I think is actually really important. I've been meaning to talk about for a while, um, and, and both of us are bringing a different perspective on the topic to the table, which I'm also excited about and excited to to you know dive into. The with absurdity, we talk about all things absurd in religion, culture, and society. And if there's something where you've looked at it, you've researched it, you've you've seen it and said, like, that's absurd that it's happening. There's kind of a running joke with guests on this show that like midway through the episode, they're in a rant about the thing that they're on to talk about. And they go, it's just absurd. And then they like it clicks as to why we're called this. Um, but we talk about everything that is absurd. Now, that being said, just because you think something's absurd doesn't mean it always is. And that can go for us, too. So. We may disagree sometimes on what is absurd, but that's the beauty. And that's where I think, I think when we start from the place that everything is absurd, we can have better conversations because when you do that, there's a little bit of humility involved in understanding that, yes, what you believe could actually be absurd, or at least at the very least, I understand as a Christian that what I believe is absurd to a lot of people. And I understand why that's the case. Uh, So that's where this comes from. And today we are talking about wealth. 
generational wealth, building wealth. <laughs> and it's absurd wealth. to think that Ryan and I have any. Exactly, because we're in ministry. So the our, our wealth <laughs> the church is, in is cheap. Unless yes. they run the church, then they're loaded. Oh, sorry. Or they're or they're paying for legal fees. So the oh. <laughs> the True. reality here is, if you think that this is going to be a like Dave Ramsey, don't get credit cards conversation, you're wrong. This is not a finances and investment episode, and I personally okay, you- dislike. I was just going to say, did you have to bring up that name? All right, here's an aside to probably tick off half our watchers. Okay. I love you said an aside. We're not even on the topic yet. You said it aside before we got there. I know, I know. People are like, why why are you not even getting to the topic? I promise. But since you mentioned it, I have to, oh, just for my own, I'm being totally selfish right now. I have to get this off my chest. Okay. I grew up around, you know, a church that used his financial peace university materials. My father was a banker growing up. And uh, he went into education later in his life, but in which case he used to kind of teach the thing. So I, I remember, and, and I'm dating myself, but I remember the cassette tapes and you had workbooks and my, and my dad believed in finance and whatever. And so my dad would teach a lot of those principles. I had never really watched though, or at least as a kid, I don't remember watching him or listening to him that much. It was always my dad telling the same principles and it's my dad. My dad, I think has a, I'm biased, but has a better way of saying stuff. It wasn't until probably about five or six years ago, our particular denominational persuasion, uh, the regional authorities for that, took several of us pastors out to Dave Ramsey's like area in Nashville, to like where his Financial Peace University company headquarters is or whatever, for like a pastor's ministry leader's seminar retreat thing about financial peace. And they were paying for it. And I was like, oh, cool, Nashville, you know, spaghetti factory, but whatever. (laughs) So we went, you know, the important things, I'm just being honest. So we went and I remember sitting in the lecture hall or whatever church they were renting for him to do this at or whatever. And there were several different speakers that were supposed to be here. And I have no shame in telling you, I guess, unbeknownst to me, because I didn't know what he looked like for some reason, I just didn't know. He walks out to do the first introduction thing and start talking. And I remember getting annoyed and just really angry because I felt like they were just totally trashing people that were struggling in life and acting like people were dumb and just like, it was like all the Christian cliches that make me sick, plus finances, plus Mm -hmm. coming across as rich white guy whose nose, if there's any further stuck up in the air, he'd drown when it rained, looked down on poor people, kind of, you know, Gotham-esque jokes. And I didn't know who this was. And I remember leaning over like an idiot to one of the denominational leaders that was like next to me in the row, just the way we were sitting. And I remember leaning over and go, when will Dave Ramsey come out? Because this guy is a complete rear end. And the guy kind of looked over his shoulder at me funny, like, and was like, that is Dave Ramsey. And I was like, oh, needless to say that completely used the story. I do not like him as an individual. I wish him well. Uh, I hope he will be saved. I hope he can learn to love people like Jesus loves people. But while his principles are good, I would say hashtag because, well, most of, I just, let me rephrase that. The majority of his principles are good. And you know why? Because they come from the Bible. But that being aside, his the personality behind it, uh, not a big fan. Okay, I just had to get that off my chest. No, Thank that's you fine. so much. I understand. Go to the topic. I will say, I will say, well, I think I think Dave Ramsey does a lot of I think he does a lot of good for a very specific kind of person. And I think that the tough love approach does work for certain like there are certain people that, yes, if you get a credit card and use it responsibly and pay off your debt every month and make you know pay off your balance every month then yeah, you're using a credit card well, you're getting the rewards. It's a financially responsible decision, building credit. That's totally fine. 
And but there are some people that should just never own a credit card like me five years ago. Like there should there's just, there are just certain types of people that should never own it. And so when Dave when someone like Dave Ramsey says, just go ahead and cut it up, because until you deal with the stuff that is like actually causing you to overspend, it doesn't really matter what you what you have. You're paying more in interest than anything else. Like you're not being responsible or, or a good steward. And I understand that that tough love approach works for a lot of people. My problem with Dave Ramsey isn't necessarily his advice or his approach, depending on who he's talking to. My problem is the utter disdain he's shown for his employees throughout the pandemic and his utter disdain for the exact target market that he serves. And I have another video talking about that on my YouTube channel, if anyone's curious. But but I yeah. that's, I, that's I, I where my issue love. has. I, I don't get degrading people or degrading others at their expense you're not even talking to to prove a point. I just... Exactly. No. Yeah. Anyway. So anyway... <laughs> The, now so that we made to, this about Dave Ramsey, uh, it's not yeah. actually our topic, and it's my fault we didn't no. get to it. <laughs> and if you want alternatives, just reach out to us. Contact info's in the show notes or episode description, so you can go and check that out and, and let us know. And I'll be happy to send you some amazing resources that are that don't cost you $600 uh, or, you know, the second stimulus check. So happy to do that if you would if like. If you still have it, if you haven't spent it. Yeah. Right. So the... The purpose of today is actually to talk about generational wealth, specifically within the context of disparity. There's a lot of things that I think both of us are going to bring up that there's a a shocking number of people that just don't know that these are realities. I didn't even know some of the stuff that I'm going to bring up. I think I didn't even know about until probably the last year and a half. I would say I I learned some of this stuff and did not realize it and. I, I think I'm going to talk more from the racial disparity side of it. Henry, I think you, you're going to shift a little bit more towards the generational. But I will say this, this, this topic alone, this topic alone, in my opinion, and this is, this is going to where, where we alienate, but or we're divisive, but this topic alone, in my opinion, is what basically proves white privilege is a thing. And just so we're clear, just be like white privilege is not if you had to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and work your way out of poverty and you didn't have certain advantages um, and like white privilege isn't a it, it, it's not meant to be a a blanket term that describes every single person in every single circumstance in every single way. There are some people that do mean it that way. Uh, but th th when I talk about white privilege, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about it as an umbrella term for that describes, I would say, most in in western culture and specifically in america but like racial disparity alone and generational wealth is one of the things that in my opinion proves that white privilege is actually a thing at all so anyway and at getting... least as two white guys including me who just admitted his dad was quote a banker in the 90s mm -hmm. and i'm white and talking about finances i just seem to thank you so much i guess i'm not needed for this conversation <laughs> <laughs> well i mean the yeah, th that's relevant. Um, <laughs> yeah, that that fit the description. Anyway, so we're and it's interesting because we're in an economy right now where we're very very close to another housing market crash, uh, and you've had, I mean, house Hashtag prices we're not financial planners. are, yeah, ha housing analysts are, housing prices are soaring. Uh, houses are being bought up in seconds and being bought up by people wanting to rent and like not wanting to rent themselves, but like wanting to rent out. Uh, you have so many, you have a, also the cost of lumber has what doubled because of COVID and supply or tripled, tripled. Yeah. Yes. And, and so it's, 
like building a house is expensive. Housing just costs in general are expensive. And for the last several years, you've had loans being approved for people that shouldn't be getting loans, which sounds familiar for anyone who's, you know, 13 years old or older. So the Great Recession. Yes. So they, we're very close to another one of those. And housing is actually one of the basically the the best ways, if not the best way, real estate in general is one of the best ways to build wealth for yourself. I'm, I'm going to, well, first of all, I do agree with the last statement that housing is one of the, the best tr uh, transformational and transitional forms of wealth in this country, or at least that's how it was supposed to be. It's getting less that way. Yes. Uh, I, I would push back somewhat, again, hashtag not a financial analyst or, or you know, advisor. Don't worry. You don't have to give that disclaimer I, every time. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, I, I, I would just, I push back. I don't think we're anywhere in the same spot we were in 2008 when the housing bubble bust there yeah okay correct bubble. correct we're not we're not uh, it's, there it's not like people are having reverse mortgages or they're underwater on their yes. mortgages that's 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 not where it is i think where i would push is i do think another housing crisis is coming but it's not going to be a matter of people lost their homes it's going to be most people just can't even get in one correct and i think we're already seeing the we're probably already a good way over that line moving into it now i mean i can say even in my own privileged situation. My wife and I have been in the house that I'm in right now for about a year now. And, you know, we got it right near the beginning of COVID. So everything was kind of delayed because of COVID, but we were, we, we were in because of that. And that was before lumber prices went up and the housing markets kind of reboomed when COVID was starting to go away and pent up demand. Mm -hmm. And we're in an area of the country that's growing quite a bit. And already just in the year we've been in here, the price for the same model home, because we're in a new development, everything's getting built, uh, for the same model home, like five doors down, because we were at the end of the street when we bought, and now they've finished the street gotcha. you know, since we bought. They bought, like, you know, built 10 more homes going the other way. They sold the same model home at the end of the street for almost a hundred grand higher than we bought this house mm -hmm. a year ago for. And my wife and I were looking at that going, if we had shown up now, just a year later, there is no way we could afford to live in this neighborhood. We would never yep. have been able to buy this house. It's outpriced and, itself that fast. And I'm just like, how do people do this? Which also <laughs> means you're like a hundred grand richer without well, really- Well, yes and no. To, to, to me, house wealthier. equity- Well, ugh, to, you know, that, that's only going to matter when I die and give it to my children, right? We're just talking about generational wealth and Correct. how that's normally supposed to happen. But to, to me, while you're alive, a lot of it is- is on paper because you know, assuming the whole market keeps going up, yes, I'm a let's say a hundred K ahead. Well, but if I sell and then try to get into the exact same house now, the prices are all going to be right. At, you're not getting really ahead. You know, the only way you yes. get ahead is well, to get you that are value getting moved to a lesser area of yeah. If I mean, or you move, you liquidate your assets, but yeah, no, no, I, I I agree with what you're saying, and and very much so. I do think that we're gonna we're in another situation too where people have to buy houses so quickly that they can't inspect them properly and you've got other issues now that you're stuck in a house that you you know <laughs> that you can't afford repairs house for. exactly that's that actually was, what that i was, was referencing I, I, I just wasn't was going to bring it up say, well I'll, I'll go ahead and bring it up since this is talking about again people get that the last city and state i was in prior to this was also a booming market and i remember like houses go on the market and within 24 hours they're gone because there were mm. like 10 bids and everybody's going over Price and I got into a situation where I had to bid on one that came on the market like within four hours of doing it to have a chance, and my real estate agent pushing it, and 
because of the market and the way it was so hot and the way some of these inspectors work or don't work, I would later find out, uh, and the way the banking system was running it, I ended up getting sold a house that was great from the floor up, and the foundation had a big issue that nobody bothered to notice in the inspection or if they even inspected it, I'm starting to think after the fact, really. And I know that's on me, and that's what you should really look at, and I learned some lessons with that too. But I, I ended up in a, a a not so pretty penny that I only discovered when I was selling the house to come get a house and move in with my new wife and found mm. out I owed tens of thousands of dollars in a lemon foundation in the house. So, yeah, but... <laughs> yeah. Nope. I, so... I I think that I I do think that housing is an is an issue and will continue to be an issue for for different reasons than in 2008 but I do think eventually we get there again if we're not careful. The for me I I I think first thing I want to say is when we talk about wealth we're talking about we're talking about net worth, we're talking about, you know, how much money your your family actually has access to in assets, we're talking about how much your capable of getting when we're talking about wealth disparity and the ability to increase wealth and to to change disposable your... income basically yeah i mean it's it, there's so much too it's not when we talk about wealth we're not talking about your paycheck though that's a part of it we're talking about everything and your entire financial picture so for example when you and this will i get i think this will come up later but but student loans are a part of the wealth conversation and a part of the yes. wealth disparity conversation and so uh, let's start with a more controversial one, uh, which is racial disparity and, and and how we're looking at a how we look at this from the the perspective of white and black Americans. And what's interesting which intersects exactly with housing, which we were just talking about. Yes, because redlining was a big part of this. So if you've never heard of redlining, if you've never heard of any of these terms, I'm going to invite you to 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 look them up a bit if you if you need help with it. Um, I'm going to talk, I'm going to mention some of this briefly, but really what I want to talk about are, 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 are two things. And Henry, I'd love for you to just chime in whenever as, as I, as I do talk about these, but, uh, the Ding first dong. one, the first one, I'm not going to go too far into, uh, which is the 40 acres and a mule, uh, that comes, that goes back to the civil war era. And that was when free people were expecting to be able to take the land and, and live on the land that they worked on. And that was actually basically steps were taken to ensure that that wouldn't happen. And that's that's the that's the 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 very, very short version of it. But where I want to actually put my focus, and this is why I just mentioned that because I think that's that's a major part of this the disparity too. But I actually want to well, and it, it leads up to the thing you're about to talk about because yes. the same factors behind that are going to play a big deal in the transformational or lack thereof thing you're about to say, which is the GI Bill. Of hey! 1944, so the GI Bill was uh, was a part of a package meant to uh, meant to help veterans after World War II with education, with housing, and literally you can trace suburban America basically back to the GI Bill. The GI Bill is basically responsible for establishing suburban America. And interestingly enough, I have my own theory about why specifically. One thing I say about the difference between white churches and black churches is that uh, white churches, in white churches, everyone, or sorry, in black churches, everyone is worshiping together communally. It's a communal worship experience. And in white churches, everyone is worshiping together individually. Or white, where everyone is worshiping individually together. And 
I think a big part of that is actually due to single family homes and the rise of suburban America. I actually think you can trace. I mean, that being said, there's also the the fact that there's a lot of there's a lot more history rooted communal history rooted in in black history in America. But I think you can see a, an increase in individualism in white people specifically because of the the rise of suburban and, and middle class America. And the GI Bill, it, it can be traced to, to that pretty, pretty significantly. Well, my theory the on the on the big pieces yes. of, of FDR's social contract. I mean, when you look yes. at the 30s and you look at the early 40s, the whole idea was now you know, in the name of here's a generation that's having to fight fascism, that's having to fight totalitarianism and do that, we're going to reward them. And this is going to be a huge investment. Uh, I mean, and part of this, you have to understand, comes out of the mindset of the 30s, too. They just come out of the Great Depression. OK, the mm-hmm. only reason the depression is going away is because the wartime economy has just blasted through the fact that now you don't need bread lines anymore. Everybody's making shells, artillery, tanks, planes, weapons, Whatever. I mean, you know, typewriter companies are popping out guns. I mean, so everybody has moved into the wartime economy and you have a realization that when war is done, that's going to go away for the most part. Now, that would be another topic for another time, the military industrial complex, as Eisenhower would later talk about. But yeah, (laughs) the whole idea is now you're going to have millions of men that have been mobilized, getting a steady pay and in some ways a decent pay because of combat pay and all sorts of other things. And now they've got to come back. And is the country going to be able to at the same time that it's ramping down wartime industry? But you also have now four million plus men that had a daily job in the army or the whatever. And they're not in that anymore. What are these people going to do? There's not jobs for four million people when the next year jobs you artificially created are disappearing at the same time. So how do you prevent the country from economically collapsing, but at the same time invest in the next generation? And it was really a great investment of wartime capital into a whole generation of returning men, or at least it was supposed to be. (laughs) Well, yes, it was supposed to be. But so the GI Bill was I didn't realize you were handing it off. That was really smooth. Well done. Uh, The. The GI Bill was not inherently intended to be racist, but it was structured in a way that basically resulted or or gave way and made room for explicitly racist outcomes. And now now if you had to 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 distill that down, what would be the one thing about the GI Bill that opened it up to racism, basically? Basically, that the power for, for example, benefits, the power for, let's say, loans were taken away from the federal government and given to states. That is the Ah, number one factor that brought on uh, that brought on this. So one one concrete example of this is because federal government, the federal government wasn't in charge of of enacting a lot of this anymore. The VA could only could co-sign loans, but couldn't guarantee them. So when you have white run institutions, And you have all of the things of Jim Crow America in place, which is access to resources, access to um, access to items, access to places, access to everything being limited based on color and all the better things being given to white people, which is still a thing that, by the way, happens today. And we've talked about in other episodes. The 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 reality is that it opened the door for white led institutions to block and deny outright deny loans to black people and refuse to give them housing loans, refuse mortgage. Yeah. Refusing mortgages and refusing a lot of the benefits for American or for black Americans. On top of that, 
Bankly, wow, that was a Freudian slip. Bankly, frankly, you know, preventing all of its benefits from being fully utilized. Because people don't realize it's not just that you, let's say you go into a Southern state, let's pick on that, like the state, both both states that you and I are in right now, we're participating in this kind of thing. A African-American GI comes in, wants a loan. Well, the bank goes, first, I don't want them in that neighborhood. And second of all, I don't want to give them a loan. And the VA can only co-sign. It can't guarantee, like you said, so they just deny them the loan. Or they only give them a yeah. loan for some part of town they want them in. But it's not just that. Educational benefits. They were supposed to be able to get not just trade schools and other that, but go back to to four year, two-year and four-year degrees. Well, that's easier said than done when you're in the South and you go to a privately run, because remember, these aren't federally run universities. It's not Correct. community colleges. And you go to an admissions board or all that, and you go, I would like to study... X subject. And they look at you and go, sorry, we don't have tools for African-Americans to use to learn that subject. Take something else. All right. And so you had a lot of them that couldn't go to school for certain things, and they couldn't even go to the trade schools that the VA was encouraging them in the absence of four-year degrees to go to because they go, as I just said, well, we don't have tools for you to use because those are whites-only tools. Yeah. Well, so now you can't take the classes, so you don't get that education either, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The what, what's interesting is during my research for this, I actually discovered this. One of the other reasons and in, in that black people were actually blocked was because of uh, honorable discharge. So a much yeah, most African Americans got dishonorable discharge. A a a large a much larger number of black people were discharged uh, dishonorably discharged. The actual disparity: twenty one percent of white soldiers were were dishonorably discharged. Thirty nine percent, almost half. Right, like closer to half than than or, to I, I, might be a better statistic is almost double the rate of their yes. white counterparts. And and this is and you want to know where like if you're wondering if you're wondering am I you know do I have any sort of prejudice? If you're wondering, well, those nineteen you know those those eighteen percent more people they probably did something. What did they do to deserve it? There might be prejudice there. So what's that? Uh, you want to know how you're uh, the the Jeff Foxworthy bit? Uh, how you know you're prejudiced? Instead the so a lot of a lot of black Americans were outright blocked from this from the start because they were dishonorably discharged. And one person, one person who was specifically in, involved in the in the drafting and passing of the GI Bill was Mississippi Congressman John Rankin, who An at one point segregationist. Yes, he at one point proposed legislation to confine and then deport every person with Japanese heritage during World War II. Oh, that'd be That's... another topic to talk about: Japanese internment camps mm-hmm. in the forties. There's, but... yeah, there's, there's, yes. So, my point being that in the entire, the entire bill that gave white America a lot of, like, a really, when they already had a major, major uh, head start in America, because a lot of the land that should have gone to freed slaves after the Civil War went right back to their pre, pre, pre-war white owners, right? So you've already got you've already got generations of of wealth being amassed for white people ahead of time, ahead of blacks. And then you've got in World War II, the rise, like basically the birth of the middle class and suburban America being handed to white people with intentional steps being taken to limit access to for for black Americans. And as a result, 
Like you've got redlining, you've got, check this out, in 1947, only two of the more than 3,200 VA guaranteed home loans in 13 Mississippi cities went to black borrowers. Two of more than 3,200. And in New York and northern New Jersey suburbs, fewer than 100 of the 67,000 mortgages insured by the GI Bill uh, supported home purchases by non-whites. Well, and this is going to go into why HBCUs are such a big thing nowadays, because people don't yep. realize that these institutions face the huge influx of students because they weren't getting any help anywhere else, and these colleges and universities couldn't handle them. <laughs> yep. So just so all of that to say that there is a there is a very very big wealth gap, and there will be a link to everything I just I just referenced in the show notes for you. But there is a the the median income for white households in 2019 was seventy six thousand and fifty seven dollars. And for black households, it was forty six thousand, and and seventy three, and seventy three. Yes, and seventy three. Sorry, said, I did. I, I did say fifty seven. Exactly. Yeah, I know exactly what article you're looking at because it's up here on my screen. Yeah, as well. it's and and the <laughs> the reality like the reality of this is forty six thousand is that's the median, which means that <laughs> there's a lot under and a lot over, and the over is not enough to make up for how many are under. That's saying that those under are dragging that median down. And like just saying, yes, there are successful black people isn't like that doesn't cut it here because America traditionally has taken steps throughout all of its history. Like people from the Jim Crow era are still alive. And I often wonder when I'm in church and especially when I've been in churches that are mostly older people, like way older people, I always wonder, like, how many of y'all probably were involved in a lynching and just we don't talk about that. Like when I'm talking about, about way that, older people. No, 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 no. I know what you're saying. And not to get totally off track, now that we're on the topic, I can do an aside. I, I actually am pastoring in a church with a history that goes all the way back into the 40s in the deep south here. And I actually have a individual in my church, several of them, but I'm just going to reference one in my mind. I have an individual that's involved in our local leadership, does some things, and uh, you know, at one point I was visiting with them and they retold a story to me. And that story was they can remember the first time they, you know, entered the church. Because that's one of those things you, as a pastor you ask when you get in a new church, you try to get to know people like, so what was your first experience at the church or whatever? Well, this individual is African-American. And I was not prepared for the story about this exact church that I'm pastoring mm. that he gave me. And, um, and hold your horses because the guy's a member, which is just crazy. I probably, I don't know if I would be. His first experience with this church was they were being invited to come for some special program for something by the, the pastor, uh, the white pastor at this predominantly white church. The head deacon at the time was standing outside the church waiting for this gentleman and his friends that were supposed to be part of this program. He met them at the front door. They could not set foot through the front door of the church. He walked them around to the back door of the church, walked them in the building, up the stairs, walked them through the back of the sanctuary to the front row that was taped off for them. Mm. No one else sitting on this row. They sat them there. He specifically remembers a empty row behind them and then everybody else sitting. They sat there. Nobody acknowledged they were there. They did their part of the program. The pastor said thanks or whatever. When the service was done, you know, because this is back in the age where, well, some churches still do this, but like deacons come and then escort people out and, you know, stand yeah. in the rows and all the weird stuff. That same deacon came back 
to the front row before everybody else was dismissed, walked them back out the back of the sanctuary, down the same stairs, out the back of the church, and then shut the door behind them. Yikes. This happened in this church. And you want to know what's even more awkward when he finally told me this story, because he didn't, he wasn't doing this to throw anybody under the bus. He later, through a process of events, ended up a member of this church. He came back. Talk about God's redemption, but also thinks this is crazy to think about. That same deacon that had walked him in as a teenager and back was the head deacon at the time that he showed up at this church to be a member. Um, And of all ironies, and I think God just has a way, this gentleman is now the head deacon in place of that gentleman in this same church that treated him as such as a teenager. Wow. And it's crazy to think of stories like that. This is within our lifetime. I'm talking to this guy. That was his experience in the church I'm in. Yeah. And I just shake my head and go, you know, you talk about lynchings, I'm sure, but there's some of these individuals are still alive that he remembers doing that. And I'm like, holy moly, <laughs> just, just, ah. Um, and his heart to still want to minister to the church. Uh, again, this is a testament to someone who believes in the message more than <laughs> the people in it, for sure. Yeah. But just, you can't no, tell I, us this stuff didn't happen. Ugh. I 100% agree with you. And I think that there is... I, I think we have a, a, there's a lot of that that we that we do honestly need to deal with. The in in my opinion though, I think there's a there's a problem there's a problem where we think my whole my whole issue with and, and why I wanted to bring that up specifically today is because I think there's a really big issue with celebrating like hustle culture and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and build the American dream for yourself sort of deal. And if you give the, somebody bootstraps, I, yeah, exactly. Well, and ironically, uh, I actually did talk about this in another episode. Unfortunately, that recording failed us miserably. We had to re-record, and then that, this whole spiel did not make it into that episode. The, when we re-recorded it, but the, I'm really just, tired of hearing these inspirational stories of someone working three jobs to get themselves through college, which is, by the way, you know, working full time while you're in school does not get you through school. Uh, I don't care if you did it in the 70s. I don't care if you did it in the 60s. I don't care if you did it in the 80s. It does not. That doesn't work today. Sorry. I don't know what it to tell you. about but 10 it, years off your life. Yes. And also you most companies won't even let you work full time at that age anyway, because uh, they don't want to pay benefits. So you're limited. But the, because, you know, we've tied health insurance to job and healthcare to your job instead. So thanks, Obamacare. An entirely different, uh, yeah, right. They, that's an entirely Work different. Work your 39 hours and not but, 40. But, you know, we love the Affordable Care Act. So the. Yes, we, we do like the Affordable Care Act. <laughs> I'm just saying that. People are working around that 40-hour limit. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm saying I'm, I'm, I'm playing on the riff that, like, so many people love the Affordable Care Act, but hate Obamacare because they don't. Yeah. They don't it's not realize actually called Obamacare, but anyway. Yeah, they don't. Yeah, they don't realize it. So the, but my problem is that I'm tired of us. Like it's a, it's amazing when someone does that. I'm not trying to take away from someone who does that and who has done that. And by the way, just so we're clear, trying to make it so that future generations don't have to do that is not taking away or diminishing your experience. It's not disrespectful to your experience to not want that experience for other people. And I get sick and tired of the parents who say. I want my kid to have a better life than me. And then the second that their kid has a better life than them, they're petty, they're jealous, they limit, they emotionally manipulate, they, they economically abuse their kid so that their kid 
you know, make, they got to make sure their kid is grateful for all the opportunity that their parent is now limiting them from. And I, mean, I they, s- people should work, but do they have to work five jobs just because you did? I mean, well, and on top of that, teaching them a work ethic and slavery. <laughs> and well, and what, so what I was going to say was, do you really want the gifted minds and the gifted people with that work ethic that are doing that? Do you really want their energy and talent and passion poured into that? Or would you rather it be empowered and poured into something that matters as far as a, from a societal standpoint that matters from solving a cancer? Yes. Solving literally anything. And that's what's so frustrating to me is, is we've, we've, we've built this up and say, well, you just need to work your way out of it. And I just don't, I don't buy that. I don't think that that's the way that we should, that's the thing that we should accept. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have to work at all. I'm not saying that you have to work for it. I get that. What I am saying is that there is a very real economic disparity that exists. And I see it. I'm a college recruiter. I meet with families all the time talking about finances even when I talk about, we have a, the school I work for has a, has a work match scholarship and, you know, whatever work you do over the summer, we will do a, a brief, uh, or we'll do a small match dollar for dollar up to a certain amount for whatever you earn that summer. And, you know, it, it's open to any student. And what I'm realizing as I, as I go through it is that that scholarship basically ends up favor, not favoring because it does apply. Anyone can, can technically get it. But you know what families are super confident? It's the families who have, you know, extended family that owns a business or they have the connections and they go, yeah, he's just going to work on so-and-so's business and they're going to make sure they pay him 2500 at the end of the summer and he's going to have his match amount. Or Thank you for giving us very specific financial information. Yes. So the, 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 the reality is that there are a lot of students that don't have the same access to jobs that don't have those same connections and it's through no fault of their own. And now they have to go even, they have to work even harder just because of where they were born or just because of, of potentially what they look like and the circumstances that they were born into. And now they may not be able to be able to as easily acquire that kind of thing. And granted, this is so just before anyone attacks the, the, the university for this, this is the first year the scholarship has existed a, donor funded it actually and the school is using this summer to to measure its impact and its effect before we can before we decide what to do with it in future years so no one like jump on the train literally it's open to everyone so that we can we can actually gather data so that's part of it but that's the reality is there are a lot of things that yes if you are if you are already starting off from a better financial position and by and large white people tend to be the ones that are born into that position more frequently, not saying all, not saying if you're some, you know, from really small town that you were born. I'm not trying to say any of that. Okay. If you don't, if you're, if you, if your circumstances, yeah, if your circumstances are not described by what I'm saying, then I'm not talking about you. I, (laughs) that's how that works. Right. So I'm just the pot calling the kettle black. That's probably a poor phrase to use. Right. Yeah. That was, that was, that's very poor. My point. And that's also, Bad phraseology. I can't win. My point I was trying to make is, <laughs> and I just proved it. I love it. Right into it, is neither one of us need to die the death of a thousand disclaimers. Hopefully, people yes, understand thank where you. we're coming from. If you don't comment, and we'll nah, people will still comment. Um, I mean, they they will I, anyway, and that's that's fine. Yes. Comment. Go ahead. It just so drives please, up our it, views. Um, so <laughs> just make sure you leave a thumbs up too. That really matters on YouTube. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so, so no, now, but you're, let's talk about right. let's, let's let's sound like entitled millennials for a moment. 
Oh, that right, one. That one gets that me up. even more. Oh yeah, yes. So let's, okay, let's, keep let's going. I'm gonna yeah, and I'm gonna bring, look something you, up for myself while you do this. Yeah, you you riff on that while I bring that up for a second. So all right, we talked about the racial disparity for a minute, but it's not and 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 I say this to say once I add this second thing in, imagine just how much worse it is for African American millennials. All right. Yes. Or, Gen or X. people of color in general, by the way, because this is uh, right you know, in general. It's minorities, but there's a specific relation in America to Black Americans because of the history there. So that's right. why that so gets let, talked about a lot more. Correct. So let's talk about millennials for just a second. And by millennials, I'm going to use the federal, uh, the the Fed definition of millennials, which right now means if you turn, if you were between 24 and 39 in 2020, you're a millennial. Okay, I know different people have different blah, blah, what is that? But that, by that definition, both Ryan and I are millennials, so now we can talk about ourselves. Okay, we're the largest generation in the workforce in the U.S. right now, okay, but we're also the least wealthy. Yay, us! Okay. Um, <laughs> so uh, so according to the Business Insider, when I was looking up these statistics here, uh, citing the Federal Reserve data, uh, our generation holds only 4.6% of U.S. wealth. So that works out to about mm. $5.19 trillion. I'm not doing this math. Uh, Bloomberg News did this math. Uh, and boomers, which is the generation ahead of us, so that would be, you know, they were born between 1946 and 1964. So they're like 56 to 74 or whatever in 2020. Okay, they hold 53.2% of U.S. wealth. So it's like that whole generation that had the GI Bill to help them, Mm -hmm. right, among other things. That's $59.96 trillion, okay, which is also double what Gen X holds, which is like $28.5 trillion. Anyway, the point is, right, there are only, there's 56 million millennials in the workforce, and there's only 41 million boomers in the workforce, and yet over 50% of the wealth is head by them and less than what did I say? Now I got to scroll back up. Yeah, less than 5% is held by us. Yep. Okay. Um, now, obviously, and the article, I think, says something along these lines, too. Wealth, that wealth gap is partially explained by the fact that boomers are duh, older, so they've worked longer. They've had longer times to pay off debts. Uh, they've had their peak earning years, mm-hmm. they call it. So, so yes, obviously, you and I haven't lived long enough to do that. But the reason I'm bringing this up is historical trends are indicating that the wealth gap shouldn't be as big as it is. By by far, in other words, in other words, the the wealth gap between when boomers were our age and now what we are is four times larger than it was. Mm. Okay, so in other words, someone at our same age in the generation in front of us, okay, was four times better off than we are yep. financially in the United States. I can't speak for the whole world, uh, but you know, between that, okay. And and to put a final number on that, and then uh, it looks like you want to comment on something, Uh, to put it this way, to put that into something you can visualize, a boomer at our same age had $600,000 more, that's the median average, $600,000 more in their average net worth than we do at their exact same age. Mm Mm-hmm. $600,000 thousand dollars more they had the chance to either be given have earn pay yeah whatever at their same age than you and i do now if i had an extra 600 see now i'm sounding entitled and white if i had six hundred thousand dollars right now my house would be paid off for one and a lot of other things would be dealt with (laughs) i have not had i have not had access to six hundred thousand dollars 
Yeah. And I probably I, I, will not have access to $600,000. What's funny is I actually at one point, not me specifically, but my family did, not because of anything good, by the way. So if anyone like, um, but unfortunately because of mental health problems and yes, my dad. Um, yeah. And the if anyone's curious, my dad passed away when I was uh, 17 of a heart attack. And uh, we, my family had no idea he had a life insurance policy. And that did benefit. And yet I still ended up having to go to school on student loans because of some things that happened in my family outside of that. And if, before anyone comes in, in here telling me it's because of financial mismanagement, uh, no, that's all. So this isn't that episode, and that's not the thing to, to come at me for. I know. So, we could have another whole conversation about medical yeah. costs in this country, but... Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... One thing that I, one thing I, I actually did a presentation on this at a at a church that wanted to know about empowering young adults, and uh, this was this was based off of some research in uh, from something in 2018. Uh, in 1960, the medium gross rent was 71 dollars, or 588 in today's dollars. The current median U.S. rent, according to Zillow, is 1700 dollars. This is 2018. Good grief. Yeah. All right. In the oh, late well, 19. 19- higher than that. Yeah. Now. So it's go. gone higher. Yep. <laughs> In the late 1980s, it cost 7050 or 15160 in today's dollars for a private undergraduate degree. The average cost today is 34740 That was, once again, 2018. I'm going to say the cost of that is like almost what one full mm-hmm. school year is now, isn't it? Yes. I mean, you Child... universities. So. No, that is. that. Yeah, yeah. Yep, absolutely. Childcare and pre-college education. Hey, that's a factor up... of four. Where have we heard that before? Hey, well done. Childcare and pre-college education make up 18% of the total cost of raising a kid compared with 2% in 1960. Wages have stagnated and inflation happens so when you when i tell when, when i say in 2019 that like a black family for example the me, the median household income or is is 46,000 per year that 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 money means even less than it did 40 years ago 30 years ago 20 years ago and there's a lot of people in older generations that are operating on on the mindset of i did this when i was in school and there's this general assumption that things just have to be the same as they were today that that as they were before and they're just not like these aren't inflation folks inflation is real that's why bitcoin is the future uh the, the well, I don't know re- about that <laughs> thanks musk <laughs> be quiet um, yeah exactly the the reality of this is that g- that generations are are younger generations and I'm I feel really bad for gen z and and now gen alpha coming up is we just don't have spending power. Like people are freaking out. Nonprofits are freaking out. Education, you know, nonprofit education institutions are freaking out because like private in- institutions because their donors are dying and they're not being replaced because my generation is so busy trying to pay off debt that we can't even buy a house. And when you're paying oh, so much in rent. on how many church things I sit in and they're like, why won't your generation give more money? I'm like, yeah. We don't have any to give. We're still paying off everything that you told us we had to do in order to be successful citizens. Because, by the way, you made student loans something that specifically were exempted from, I don't know, bankruptcy proceedings. Yes. I can and, I can die and someone still has to pay those things. Yes. And that's there's so much here that, that disadvantages now younger generations from being able to do things. And yes, you could say, well, you don't have to go to college. You don't have to do this. You don't have to do that. America is the most propagandized 
country in the world, in my opinion, other than like or one of the most in specific areas. Okay, so there are other countries. I think North Korea probably beats you. Yes. So in specific areas, though, (laughs) uh, this is the case. And one of like being convinced that, yes, you don't have to go to college to be successful. And I fully believe that, actually, even as a college recruiter. I don't try to convince someone who doesn't want to go to college to go to college. I try to help the students that want to go to my school get there. That's what I do. Okay. So the reality is that most kids are going to school being told that you have to go to college if you want a future. So you may, on wherever you're sitting in your life, may say that on a, in a Facebook comment or YouTube comment or whatever, but that means nothing to the kid who spent his entire 18 or her entire 18 years of life and being told that college is the future, college is your way to the future. They don't have, they don't believe they have a choice. When I took out loans, I didn't know, I didn't really realize that I could have had a choice and being put in 30, 40, I think 30,000 is the median, uh, debt level for undergraduate in America. And the, you know, taking on that debt, you don't even realize at 18 years old, you really think that that's the time to do it. Like you, you think that's the time to say, I can take on that kind of. And again, talking about a little bit of white privilege and, you know, a generational wealth disparity. Again, my parents are in that generation that has a lot of that wealth. And my parents sacrificed a lot when I was a kid to make wise investments. And of course you can argue, well, they had the money to be able to do that. Yes and no, but they, you know, I, I do admit we were well, better off than a lot of people. And, you know, they got to the point that when I was going to school, they covered a good chunk of my loans, right? Mm-hmm. I'm only in a decent position right now for when I got married in my 30s and was able to do some stuff, only because my parents took a chunk of that. I didn't have the whole thing mm-hmm. land on my head when I was done with it, or I'd still be in a mess, you know? I. You know, I I realized I got to celebrate in my late 20s, like, ha, ah, my student loans are paid off. Well, because my folks paid half of it, you know, <laughs> so, and not yes. everybody has that option. Not everybody has that opportunity. And what, 60% of Americans are one, basically one bad day away from being homeless because of the fact that we don't have any savings. And the, when, when even you think of trying to buy a house, like I can't buy a house because my, I'm paying rent. And because I'm paying a certain amount of money you can't in rent. Save to get it's the rent I can't debt. save, and the rent. Yes, the debt to income ratio. All of that comes into play. But because I'm paying rent, I like I can go to a bank and say, yeah, um, I can afford this. I know I can afford this. This is my income, but this is what I pay in in bills. And they go, no, you can't because you're paying twelve hundred dollars in rent. Well, I wouldn't be paying twelve hundred dollars in rent if instead I was it putting to it towards my home. At, yes, correct. Like this isn't. <laughs> this one is a rocket, but that's what happens is you get denied, even though you have the, the cash to, to do it. But then you get screwed over by FHA loans, which require PMI. You get screwed over by um, having to buy a house. Mortgage insurance, by the way, folks. Yes. Uh, you get screwed over by having to buy a house without being able to inspect it. And at severely inflated prices, you have people that are not buying houses and you have people wondering and you have people living with their parents for a lot longer. I wish I could have done that. I wish I could have gone back home and lived with my mom for a few years and saved, you know, a thousand dollars in rent every month for 12, you know, for two years, for three years. That would have been amazing. I could have actually saved that money and put it towards a house or put it towards something. Any millennial who's working from who's living at home after school or after college for their first initial years, I applaud them. And I say, go or any Gen Z now at this point that's doing, I'm like, great. You're, you're being financially responsible given the situation our generation is currently in. And 
I think they're there's, also there's, buying time to uh, you know wait to find the right person to get married to because it's a real yes. killer when you <laughs> you live with your folks. Yes. So here's, <laughs> I think I, I want to transition into kind of where we go from here and what we do. And to me, the reason I talk about this now, granted, I get fired up about certain things, and I fully understand that. The and some of it is like baggage from how people have reacted to me in the past too. But I think where I want to go with this is, and this is my hope in every conversation I have, is that I really hope that this this helps people have to like like five percent or ten percent more empathy toward people in lesser fortunate situations or you know with with a with a harder stage of life or harder class uh, economic class to to get out of right it is not that americans like even right now there's a big conversation on if americans are lazy because so many people would rather collect unemployment than than you know go back to work at mcdonald's or burger king but no wonder when you when we spend all of our time degrading and and deriding fast food workers no wonder when the government actually pays a wage that people can live on more so than what they can live on at work, then That's no wonder they don't want to go back to that the job. extra unemployment. Thank yeah, you, right? State of South Carolina. Yeah, it's Tennessee too. Um, the, like, if you look at the government paying people, a, giving people a temporary, more livable wage, I won't even say it's fully livable, but more livable wage, and you say, you know, that's keeping people from going back to work. I don't know what to tell you other than to say that the the government paying money is not the problem. The wages themselves are the problem. And the companies like Walmart that would rather pay you less and rely on government assistance through food stamps and make you rely on that in order for you to live. And well, and then you I have would, the argument people go, well, inflation takes over then. And if you give them $15 an hour, they just raise the price. Yeah, of the it doesn't. McDonald's, McDonald's is the, one of the companies that have that have brought that up, that it wouldn't barely it would barely hurt them. Most companies that do that, that's that's a total lie. There's a there's this really dumb, heartfelt. I really want to cancel my Patreon over this, to be honest. There's this really dumb, heartfelt message from uh, Jack Conti, who's the, the founder of, Patre- uh, of Patreon. And he talked about how they just raised $155 million in cash recently and then also laid off 36 workers. And he's like so really heartfelt about being transparent and, and really wanting to talk about why he... Um, why they're doing it and they just can't afford it because they want to go this other direction. And I'm just sitting here like, so he should 100... blast off with Bezos. huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is wage and slave labor in that respect is, is ridiculous. Let alone that slave labor is actually still a thing in the prison system. So read that fine print in, they're in not the making 13th license amendment. plates though. <laughs> of course not. So I, I what I hope is that in these conversations about generational wealth, especially if you're coming from a place where you do have income and and you think, well, you need to work harder or you need to do more or yes, sometimes the answer is that someone does need to generate another stream of income. That's absolutely true. And I'm grateful for things like YouTube and otherwise that teach people how to do that and to do it for free. But the reality is there's a lot of people that are unnecessarily disadvantaged and it's not their fault. And I really wish we would take that into consideration and not just assume that someone is worse off because of a decision they made. All it takes is one bad day for so many Americans in order for them to basically be on the street. And yes, that has to be a really bad day. Don't get me wrong, but it can be as simple as a really as a as a car accident. As a small car accident where no one even dies or no car is even totaled and all it takes is the medical bills from that to bury you. 
because you were already strapped thin. And I, I don't have the solution exactly for how we make reparations or how we, we help bridge the, the, the racial divide. But what I do know is we need, I do know that we need to rework student loans and that whole industry. And I do know we need to work. It is rework too much. Healthcare. Absolutely if, too much. GoFundMe is like the second largest health insurance company in the world without even meaning to be, or in the nation without even meaning to be, because so many people go there for, uh, for, for, to cover their medical bills. And that's, that's a sad reality. That is a terribly sad reality. So there, there are certain policy changes and things we can do on a societal level, but we don't get there without first the interpersonal relational level of leveling with one another, being empathetic and sympathetic to situations, understanding, and actually being willing to have those conversations without the disdain and condescension that comes with um, believing that someone is in their position just because they did something to deserve it. Assuming that without actually knowing a person is where prejudice is, like that is prejudice and it's where further prejudice is born. So that's what I want to say there. But Henry, I, I you know, I want to pass it over to you. I, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts here. What, where do we go from here? Well, I mean, like so many things in life, the first step is admitting there's a problem, right? And there's so many things that our society has put up nowadays, politically, socially, even religiously, to try and, you know, basically say, there's no problem. Don't look here, blah, 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 blah. Well, that, that doesn't do anything. It just kicks the can down the road for it to get even more rusty so that eventually one of our children or great-grandchildren goes to kick that can and it slices their foot open and they get tetanus. So, because they didn't get a tetanus shot because they had no health care. Yep. Uh, so, wow, that was a, I, I went, that yep, really that, escalated. That's, but my, <laughs> that's what happened. But my point is, yeah, but my point is we, we have to admit that there's a problem. That's going to require a lot of different things. I mean, one thing maybe we have the right to speak to, since we were talking about entitled millennials and white privilege, uh, you know, this could be a topic for another time, white guilt and certain things like that. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I know there were some phrases that were already used in this that sounds really uh, politically charged, and I'm just ready for the comments now, like, aha, we knew they're both liberals or whatever. Well, you might actually be surprised what our political leanings are or not. I can't speak for Ryan, but but it doesn't, that shouldn't match. See, we always deflect and where's the fire and where's the, and again, we don't deal with the issue. Okay. I think it, it does not mean that I am personally guilty to admit that in past generations, wealth was despairingly, you know, given to certain ethnicities and people. Yep. Right. That doesn't automatically mean I have to now go, you know, be tarred and feathered in the street to say, I did that. Okay, that does not necessarily, you know, everyone immediately thinks it's, it, we do these extremes, either or. If I admit that, then I just said I'm a racist. And if I deny that, then somehow I'm not a racist. And well, no, it doesn't work that way, okay? You know, it doesn't mean I'm a horrible person. And if I admit, which I'll admit right now, I have been the beneficiary of white privilege in many areas of my life in this country, okay? I can own that. That doesn't mean I'm a racist, depending on what I do with it. You see, and that's the big thing. First step is admitting that there's a problem. The second thing is within our power or whatever has been handed mm -hmm. to us or whatever, what are we going to do about it? And I don't necessarily have the immediate prescriptions to solve it either. You know, uh, some people will go, well, reparations and you give money or other people will go, you know, change the student loan system or whatever. And there's probably something to be said about having a conversation about all of that. But the point is, first of all, you have to admit it's a problem to have a conversation. And then second of all, we need to learn to have conversations. 
because mm-hmm. right now we live in the echo chambers of, I don't have a conversation. I have a discussion with people that agree 100% with me. And if you don't agree with me, it's not a discussion, it's a debate. And then it's a yep. zero-sum game where which one can I crush? And it's it's not about figuring things out collectively. In so many areas, and the church, I say this is a Christian, the church should be modeling this, and we're not. We're, we are more chasing after modern political discourse than influencing it. Well, let me take this back. Mm-hmm. Evangelical Christianity is influencing public discourse, but not in the way it should be. We are further inflaming the situation and using the said tactics of politicians and thinking that's great, because as long as the Lord ends up on top, <laughs> listen, God doesn't need you to help him be on top. Okay, mm-hmm. he really doesn't. I mean, what, what kind of narcissist are we to think, well, God needs my help to become the head of the universe? Okay, yeah, woo mm-hmm. cuckoo. Uh, but anyway, I mean, that being said, we need to be modeling how do you have discussions with people when we don't agree, right? Well, that takes listening. I need to be able to hear about people. I, you know, I'll throw out on a limb here. I'm not a huge fan of what's commonly called reparations, but if I can't sit down and listen to somebody who is a big fan of that, then what? I'm not contributing to anything but the further yeah. breakdown of these issues. So first step, admit there's a problem. Second thing, listen to those that disagree with you on this thing. Have a discussion, not a debate, right? Mm -hmm. And then third, we need to, even though it's going to be difficult, even though it's going to be hard, we need to be willing to invest personal, emotional, and maybe even financial capital together into working until these problems are addressed. Try stuff. I'm not saying the first thing we do is going to solve it, but try something. That's, That's about all I got. No, I, I very much appreciate it. I, um, I, you just reminded me of this and I want to, I want to close with this is not necessarily a, that's how you know I'm a pastor. Cause I actually tell you, I'm going to close with this and then I'm going to tell you a story. The, you keep going. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. So we're going to land this plane. So now, now landing the plane coming in for our final descent, the open up your Bibles to this other verse. So oh, the burning a lot of fuel in that tank, aren't you? I am, I am in a. I actually forget that this is a reality for me quite a lot, but, and like, this isn't, I'm not saying this as like, oh, I'm, I, I'm not saying this for any other reason than background. So no one, yeah, which is, I am actually in an interracial relationship and I forget that fact all the time. All right. I'm with someone who is Dominican and dark skinned and I completely, like, I don't even think about that 99.9% of the time. He's just too things, amazed that he is dating up and on quite a few he, levels. Correct. Um, the, but occasionally something happens that unfortunately reminds me that I am in one, and specifically what I'm what I'm referring to is something that happened just this past weekend, uh, which was about four days ago from or five days ago from when we were recording this, and my girlfriend went to get her nails done. And it's not my story to tell, so I'm not going to go too in-depth on what happened. All I'm going to say is she was the only person of color in the nail salon, and she was also the only person that was treated the way she was. Mm. Uh, Not given certain amenities to, like, dry or clean off her hands. Her actual old nail residue was left on her fingers, never cleaned off. Her nail job was actually, was basically incomplete. And... She was treated as a burden and as ignored basically by everyone, you know, by anyone she tried to talk with and, and speak to. And even when she went to pay for the service, that was terrible. She came, she came back and was enraged and obviously 
we talked about it and she obviously, she was like, no, this isn't okay. Like I, I want to go get this. I want them to know what they did. And so she, we went back that later that afternoon. And I say we, because this time I went with her knowing that this is what it was. There would be a different response. Yes. Uh, When I tell you that the second we walked in, the second we walked in, that front desk was flooded with workers from the, from the nail salon and, um, and everyone else in the room went quiet for that moment. And then when she asked to speak to a manager very quietly and very privately, she asked to speak to the manager and the manager treated her flippantly, treated her like a little girl, did not let her ever get a word in because it turns out that the person who did it, did all this to her was the the guy's wife. So of course he's going to defend his family. Yep. And I watched, I sat there and watched because the one thing in this scenario as a woman and person of color, I'm like, I am not going to, not me, my girlfriend, I'm not going to overstep and in what is a very important act of reclaiming agency in a situation where you were treated as lesser than and made feel lesser than just because of the way you look. I'm not going to step in and, 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 and unless something happens that's beyond her control in that moment, I want her to stand on her own two feet because she can and I believe that she can and she should, right? I'm not going to step in unless I absolutely need to. I was there to be present and to help support her that way. And if I needed to step in, I absolutely would. And I was very much listening as I sat within feet of this happening. And I watched as they talked and she talked in private. She has to speak in private. She never went above a conversational level. They actually stepped outside at one point. And I watched this man flippantly talk to her, say he'd fix it, touched her, kept touching her shoulder several times, telling her, oh, no, that's just how it is. You know, you're new here. You don't know how our culture is. Because apparently our culture is racist. Yep. So the... So she made an she made an appointment with the manager to come back, and and the manager was the one who who offered to fix her nails for free, and he still messed them up the next day. Still, uh, did a terrible job. And I when I I back. and I sat with her as she got her nails done again, and I left my keys on the chair, and we walked back in my car. I thought I had to call AAA again. This is like the third time it's happened to me in the last three months. I go back in to see if my keys had been left on the on the seat. Sure enough. They were, but the second I walked in, once again, everyone hushed and looked up like, what is going to happen here? And if she had walked in alone, based on the experience that she described to me when she went in, once again, not my story. And if you want to question the validity of what I'm saying, that's up to you. The, I, have, I have a very, very good feeling that if I had not been there, all of those interactions go much differently. And her, her walking in as a person of color who was already treated differently by the, because of the way she looks... She walks in alone and gets swarmed like that. That's not, she's like, that's going to sap the courage right away from you. And it was, it was antagonistic and it was disgusting. This is, this is the kind of thing. And that's where I think when you say we can do something about it and what you do with your white privilege matters, that's, that is an example of what we're talking about is being present and using whatever privilege you have in order to lift someone else up and help them. It's what I've tried to do with absurdity, and it's actually what I've tried to do as a result of my podcasting skills and helping people build their own platforms and amplify their own voices. There is a need for us to do something if we are in a position to be able to help. So that is what I think Henry and I are really hoping for and really 
Uh, that's the one call to action we have for you on this episode is look for opportunities to be empathetic. Look for opportunities to do something to make someone's life just a little bit easier and a little bit better. So we hope that you've learned something. Once again, uh, our stats and anything kind of fact-wise that we've mentioned will be linked in the show notes for you if you want to go, you know, have a starting place for some research for yourself. And, you know, we appreciate you listening and we thank you so much for your support and and for for being with us on on this journey as we're as we're talking and if there's anything that we've said that's insensitive without really us meaning to be let us know cuz this is a growing and learning experience for us and if there's something that we've genuinely done wrong we are i don't want to say we're looking for opportunities to apologize but we want to do better and we want to make things right when we've done wrong so please let us know and engage with us uh, on all of the different platforms and we just thank you so much for your support and with that We'll see you next week.